be seated. Good morning. Whew. Uh, we got a lot of work to do, so, so let's get to it. Um, let's pray together. God, you are good. Even as we study your word and as we sing together and, and we join in the great joy that it is to proclaim your praises, to hear your word, to give to what you are doing in the earth, we are still unable to grasp just how good you are. And so, Father, we pray that you would be increasingly showing us your goodness and that you'd be increasing our joy and our satisfaction in you. And that as we come uh, this morning and we think about the future and we think about uh, what you're doing, what you've called us to do, I pray that we would be excited, uh, that we would be so excited that we, we almost become overwhelmed, God, and in being overwhelmed, we rush to you and we pray for the power of your spirit to move and to accomplish things that we did not dream possible. And that we would rest in you, God. We would rest in your word because that is the only place to be. Glorify your son, Jesus, uh, this, this morning. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Brad has kind of alluded to it a lot. We're going to be talking about things to come. February, if you recall, is our month on mission. Uh, and so we're going to start talking about mission. If you were here Wednesday night for our prayer time, uh, we talked a little bit about it. We, we mentioned some verses. We're going to look at those verses again. If you weren't here, uh, you missed a great time of prayer and fellowship. Uh, but that, that's okay. Um, be praying now. Be praying still. Uh, we, we don't need just one day of prayer and fasting a quarter. We need to be people who are marked by passionate, faithful prayer, as we'll see in a little bit. Uh, but we are going to talk about this month on mission, and I'm just going to let you know what that's going to look like right now. We're going to start out here, and we're going to come all the way in here. Uh, and so, so we're going to be moving. There's going to be, which is unusual for me, there's going to be a lot of notes and words on the screen. Um, get what you can down, and then uh, what I'll do is I'll post the notes on the city and on the website and on Facebook so that you can grab it from whichever medium you currently uh, employ the most. Um, but we're going we're gonna to go. Um, and so for us to talk about us being on mission, we have to talk about what the mission of church is. But before we can do that, we have to talk about the mission of God. Uh, so let's start there. Uh, we're going to talk about the mission of God for just a second. Uh, when we say the mission of God, what we mean uh, essentially is what is God doing and what is God seeking to accomplish with the things that he's doing. Uh, and so when we look at the mission of God, we don't have to think just now. We can look back to the beginning and see what God was doing in the beginning. Uh, there's this idea that is uh, pervasive in our theology, that God had a plan in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, but that somehow in Genesis 3, the power of man's sin was greater than the power of God, and so God had to come up with another plan named the law. 
And that the power of Israel's hard-heartedness was greater than the power of God, so he had to come up with another plan called Jesus and the cross. And that we are waiting for that plan to be finally fulfilled. That's not the case at all. Our sin is not great enough to thwart the purposes of God. Praise God. God has plan A, and that's it. And if you are not down with plan A, I'm sorry. And so we're going to look at God's plan A. Uh, The Bible says, and you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're in Genesis 1. And from that, we get this picture of, of God speaking commandments and the universe creation obeying. Let there be light. And there's light. Let there be this. Let there be that. And it's there. Um, and, and, and Genesis 1 has a lot of phrases that are repeated. Um, and, and all of these phrases highlight the fact that God is a king and that his word is law. And that God is doing something unique. He is building for himself a kingdom. He sets the scene for this kingdom by creating the cosmos, by creating the earth and everything in it. Uh, then in Genesis 1, we get the creation of humanity. Uh, and, and humanity bears his image and become inheritance of, or heirs, sorry, not inheritance, heirs of his dominion. And so, like God, they have dominion. They're children. We'll look at that in a little bit. Uh, but Genesis 1 is all about God building himself a kingdom where he reigns and where his word is law. Genesis 2, uh, he creates a garden, and that garden is likened unto the temple. Uh, I don't have time to go into it, but study Genesis 2 when you get a chance, and then study Kings and Chronicles, the descriptions of the temple, and look at how similar they are. That's intentional. Uh, the, the garden is full of vegetation, precious stones, animals, uh, trees, clearly. And, and the temple, all engraved along inside of it in gold, are, are animals and, and vegetation. And, and it's layered with precious stones. And, and it's, there, there's water that's meant to, to signify and, and, and to remind us of the four rivers that surrounded the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. Because the Garden of Eden was a temple. And then we know that further because he filled it with priests. Adam and the woman. Uh, she doesn't become Eve until Genesis 3. Um, Adam and the woman. So from dirt and from the man. Are priests. In God's temple. And so together what we get is that God is building for himself a kingdom temple. And he's filling it with his children. In Genesis 1.27, the Bible says that God said, Let us make man in our own image. And he created them in his own image, male and female. After his image, he created them. And a lot of people take that to mean a lot of things, and I'm sure that the meaning is, is very broad. And we can say, yeah, we have spirit and mind and soul, and we reason and we rule, and that's kind of like being in the image of God. But one of the simplest understandings that we can have is, and, and if you're a parent, you understand this, um, You look at your children, and for better or for worse, they bear your image, right? They look like you. It was amazing. 
I will never, ever, I can't say that, but uh, given natural circumstances, I will never forget the day Hazel was born and holding her and looking at her and seeing that the poor child had my forehead and nose. <laughs> but that she was lucky enough to get her mother's eyes and, and mouth and ears and just the, the awe and the beauty of that, you know, She's made in our image, and we likewise are made in the image of God because we're his children. And then we see that God's filling his kingdom with his children, with his heirs, but he's filling this temple with priests. Uh, God places Adam in the Garden of Eden, and he gives him a task. He says, work the garden and keep it. And that, that phrase, work it and keep it, is only used two other times in the Old Testament. And one is to talk about the work of the priest at the tabernacle. The other is the work of the priest in the temple. Work it and keep it is a priestly role. And if that doesn't convince you, we come all the way to 1 Peter. And, and in, Peter, or in 1 Peter, he tells us, you are a royal priesthood. This is what God is doing. That hasn't changed at all. He's creating and has created us to enjoy His grace and to extend His glory. As you work and keep the garden, it grows. And eventually the picture is that we've got this whole world that is overflowing with the garden, the temple, that is His kingdom. It's one big temple kingdom full of image-bearing, glory-reflecting priest kings. And if that's not enough evidence for you, read Revelation. What do you get a picture of? Of this place with, with a sea of glass, uh, a kingdom that is also a temple where all dwell and the full radiance of God shines there. There's not a need for the sun, right? Because the glory of God is so pure that it lights us. And we forever worship, which is the primary act of a priest. Secondary, of course, making intercessions. We won't need to because Christ has interceded for us. That is what God is doing. It's beautiful. And it's always been that way. And sin in Genesis 3 didn't mess it up. And your sin now, whatever governments are in power throughout the world, whoever seems to be winning the day cannot thwart the eternal purposes of God. And we should be excited about that. Our hearts should beam with worship. All right, so that's the mission of God. But there was sin. And God purposed that he would send his son, Jesus, on a mission. So we're going to look at the mission of Jesus. And look, we're only speaking about specific points. You, you could say, Sean, well, you didn't mention this. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm just hitting the big points. You know, there's a lot of other things that kind of go under this or you know, but, but that's what we're looking at. The mission of Jesus, the first thing that we see is that Jesus came to usher in God's kingdom. John proclaims it. 
Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus proclaims it. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. In Matthew 6, 9, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And he prays, Our Father, which art in heaven, which, by the way, um, for, for the ancient Near East, for Israel and for Israelites, what that's really saying is our royal Father in heaven. Uh, if you have a monarch or uh, of any sort, you know, like the queen is the queen mother. In the same way in the ancient Near East, because there were a lot of tribal kingdoms uh, and, and they were ruled by heads of families, to say a father and to say a king or a lord were not very different. And in this case, it makes perfect sense that Jesus is saying, our king in heaven, may your name be revered as that holy. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then the next thing he prays, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is only kind of a prayer. It's more a proclamation. The kingdom is coming because the king has arrived. Jesus has come, and he's ushered in his kingdom. And we live now in the already but not yet state. The kingdom is already here, but not yet in its fullness. Well, Jesus came to bring the kingdom, and he's coming to bring it in his fullness. It's the mission of Jesus. He came to seek and save the lost. That's what Luke 19.10, straight up is what it says. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. He came to establish His church, to send it on mission, and to empower it to fulfill that mission. In Matthew 16, Jesus has interaction with the apostles. He asked them, who am I? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're blessed, man, because the world didn't show you that. The Spirit of God did. And on that proclamation and on the work of the apostles, to, to an extent, I am building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the church will be the vehicle by which the kingdom of God overtakes the kingdom of death and darkness and Hades and hell itself and reigns victorious. It's huge. Jesus is coming to judge this is a part of his mission. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. He will judge those who do not believe by their works and their works are not good enough. And he will judge those who believe by his works. And his work is sufficient. And I need you to hear that. Some of you in here are living, even if you say you are living for Jesus, you are attempting to do it by your own work and it is wearisome. And you have this feeling within you that whatever I do, it's just not enough. Well, you're right. You're right. That's the gospel. And the good news is that Jesus has done it for us. And so if you've not yet thrown your trust into Jesus, do it. He is good. And He's doing something incredible, specifically, namely, this last thing. In Revelation 21.5, Jesus says, I'm making all things new. 
Jesus is making all things new. And you need to be, hear the wording. Jesus is not coming to make all new things. He's making all things new. That's intentional. He is redeeming the earth. He is redeeming his people. You don't need a new start like reincarnation. You don't need a new determining or determination or, or drive. Jesus is making you new. And he's making all things new. He's renewing, he's redeeming, he's restoring all creation. And all those who are found to be in him will be made new. Praise God. Praise God. And all of this, just like before, is ultimately for the glory of God the Father. The exaltation of Christ, the mission of Christ. He does not do it for himself. He does it for the glory of God the Father. So then we move on. We said that Jesus came uh, to establish the church and descended on mission. What is that mission? We're going to look at three verses. They're not going to be the primary focus as far as text is concerned, but we're going to stand for them. All right? uh, because this is the charge that Jesus has given us. Uh, there in Matthew uh, 28, in uh, Mark 16, and in Acts 1. They're going to be on the screen, and so it's rare that I say this, but don't worry about turning in your scripture to it. Look on the screen, and we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, let's read them out loud together. So stand with me as we read the mission that our Lord Jesus has sent us on. Starting in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And Mark 16, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And finally, Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so here we have our, our task. The mission of the church is to make disciples. Oh, sorry. Be seated. I'm moving. I'm moving. I, I, I can't... <laughs> That would have been funny three points in when I realized you were still standing. <laughs> huh, I must really like this. Um, <laughs> the mission of the church is to make disciples in our communities, our region, and our world. Did you catch that in, in Acts 1-8? It started in Jerusalem, and that's where the church started. And so in their city, they are 
being witnesses. They're making disciples. Uh, But then it expands to Judea and Samaria. I don't have a map for this yet, but Judea and Samaria, they're neighboring. It's a neighboring country and a neighboring city and region. And, And so they expand to that, their region, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And then eventually it goes to the whole world. And that that's what happened. It started in Jerusalem. By the end of Acts, it's in Asia Minor and parts of Europe. And by the end of the 20th century, it's in every continent. And there are still unreached people groups. But the, the church, the, the gospel is in every continent. It started with 11 men. And now there are over 6 billion People who would profess Christianity, even at least culturally. And now we're not going to go into the reality, or sorry, over four billion. We're not even going to we're not going to go into the reality that some who profess aren't right. Um, But the reality is that the church exists in every corner, so to speak, of the world. It's about making disciples, and he said that in Matthew twenty-eight. Make disciples. In fact, even though we read it and we heard three verbs, or four verbs, go, make disciples, baptize, teach, in the Greek there's only one verb, make disciples. And there are participles that modify it. So they say, make disciples as you're going. You who baptize and you who teach. That's how you do it. You make disciples by going, baptizing, which is part of conversion and entering into the covenant community and then teaching. And that's what it consists of. Going. And look at that. Going necessitates sending. Not everyone is called to go all over the world. But everyone is called to make disciples all over the world. And we do that by sending missionaries by praying for them, by funding them, by caring for the work that they're doing. The mission of Jesus is global, and we are called to be globally minded, even if we don't go everywhere. But we always go to our jobs, our schools, our neighborhoods, and make disciples. Witnessing. Proclaiming the gospel. They're very similar. Witnessing sometimes gets confused for gospel proclamation because uh, we have a tendency to think of the gospel as a thing that we preach to non-believers in hopes that they will be converted. And then there's teaching and spiritual training, which helps us grow. But the reality is that teaching and spiritual training is gospel proclamation. So we proclaim the gospel every day. Remind yourselves of the gospel. Be in the word of God. Every day, fathers, husbands, proclaim to your families the gospel, both in word and and in deed. Pastor your families. Parents, raise up your children in the gospel. It's done by conversion and baptism. All right? And we don't do the converting. The Holy Spirit does, but the Holy Spirit uses us. 
There is a very true sense in which if the gospel is not proclaimed by the church, it will not be heard and people will not be converted. And that's what we do. It's a part of what we do. And we baptize and then we teach to observe. We don't just teach doctrine. This is not about taking the best notes and having the best understanding of what the Bible may or may not say. It's about that understanding transforming the way that we live our lives. We don't just hear what Jesus said. We observe what Jesus said. That's the mission of the church. And so uh, the logical question to ask is, where do we fit into that? Because that's the mission of the church, the universal church, but it's also the mission of every local church, every local gathering of, of Christ followers, gathering of believers. Uh, we are called to that mission, but what's different is how we achieve it because of the culture that we live in, the area, uh, and the people that we are surrounded by that God has given to us. You don't go on mission the same way um, that you do in Seattle or Kuala Lumpur here. It's different. You have to contextualize. You have to make accessible to the culture you are in the gospel. And so we have to think about that. And we have to think about it urgently. Because... Well, I'll show you why. Um, the Fuqua Verena Chamber of Commerce released uh, a statement, and, uh, and I've only got the bullet points up on this slide, uh, but, but I'll, I'll, exp I'll expound upon it just a little bit. Um, they, they released a PDF called uh, The Perfect Storm, uh, and, and I've been... Uh, kind of researching different Chamber of Commerce, different growth um, trends for our communities. Um, and, and Fuqua released one called The Perfect Storm. Uh, and, and it gives us a survey of the place that God has called us to live out the mission. Another way of saying that is to live missionally. And here's what's happening. Uh, the U.S. Army is moving uh, a, a field of operations from Atlanta to Fort Bragg. Uh, and they have done this before with other uh, forts, with other bases around the nation. Um, and the Fort Bragg renovation, uh, they target the, the, the base and the city. And so there's Fort Bragg and there's Raleigh. And the Fort Bragg renovation is coming. They're moving all of these jobs and these people to Fort Bragg. And the expected uh, influx of increase in population over the next five years is 100,000 people between Bragg and Raleigh. Again, a map would have been helpful, but you guys pretty much get the point. If you draw a straight line between Bragg and Raleigh, it, it might, like the pen might be on our church. 100,000 people over the next five years. 
Uh, also, uh, Harnett County and Harnett County citizens, I don't know if you're aware of this, but they've approved a, a 401 expansion. They're expanding 401 from Fayetteville to uh, Raleigh, and uh, even Lillington may end up being a loop exit. Uh, but what that's going to mean is that commuting between Raleigh and, and Fayetteville is going to be a lot easier and a lot faster. Living in the middle here is going to be a lot more popular. Because guess what? It's cheaper. And it doesn't take you an hour to get to work. Right? And so then, <laughs> there's also this... 540 toll road and expansion. You guys have heard about this, right? I mean, they've been working on it for a little bit. When it's complete, <laughs> the, average time, the average travel time from Fuquay to RTP is going to be under a half hour. And if you live in Fuquay and have gone to RTP, that's insane. And what that means is that more people are going to be living in this area and working there because they can't. And uh, this is not from the Fuquay Chamber of Commerce, but uh, North Carolina as a state, not NC State, the university, uh, has made projections about its growth over the next 10 years. And the three counties that are projected to have the fastest growth, the most growth of the next three counties, are Wake County, Johnston County, and Harnett County. It's coming. In reality, we could just sit still and our church would grow in number. And numerical growth is not the only growth we're concerned about, but we are concerned about it. We could just sit, sit still and that would happen. But shame on us if we do that. The mission has come to us. Let's go. Let's go. This is huge. And, and look, if you remember... The mission of the church is to make disciples in our community, our region, and our world. And in order for us to fulfill that, we must, and it's up there, so write this down, we must pray for God's power. We must think strategically We must act with urgency. We must give faithfully of our time, our talents, and our treasures. And we must work together. And we're almost to the end, and I'm just now getting to the scripture that we're going to be looking at primarily. Trust me, there's not much more to say. But if we're going to do this, we must work together. And we must work. And if you don't think that we are going to be judged in some regards by our work, then listen to this text. All right? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. There's no way that we can give proper or or full treatment of this text right now, but I do want you to hear it. Jesus is 
speaking through John, telling John to write letters to seven different churches, and this church is to the church in Laodicea. And he says to the church in Laodicea, starting in verse 15, I know your works, your works. You are neither hot, or you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And really quickly... I want to tell you how I grew up hearing this, and the reason I'm telling you that is because I fear it may be how some of you grew up hearing this. Uh, And it's not very often, I don't think, maybe it is, um, that I just outright say this interpretation of Scripture (laughs) is not great. (laughs) Uh, But I remember going to chapel in my private Christian school and also to church, uh, and, and I've, I've heard it like three or four times preached, and they say, what this verse is saying, what this text is saying, is that God wishes that you were either on fire for him, or that you were cold and hard against him. But that because you're flip-floppy, and fence-riding, and only mildly into him, that he's going to spit you out of your mouth. I mean, I literally heard a pastor say that God would rather you were a passionate atheist than a lukewarm Christian. What? I mean, just for a second, think about that. God would rather that you be condemned to hell forever because of your unbelief then you believe in Jesus and, and kind of nominally go about things. God doesn't want nominal Christians. God wants you to be passionate. But that is not at all, not at all what this verse is saying. In order to understand what this verse is saying, you need to look at a map. So we have a map. There's Laodicea. All right? And if you see next to Laodicea, to the north of Laodicea, uh, just so you have an idea of where we are in context, uh, to the west of Laodicea is uh, the Mediterranean Sea. So there you go. To the northeast is Hierapolis, and that was a big town. And to the southeast is Colossae. Colossae was not as big a town. Uh, In fact, and I have to give credit to my wife, via Kent Hughes for this. I mean, Colossae was really a small town, and the only reason it's prominent in Scripture is because of missionaries from Hierapolis and Laodicea. 
Paul never visited there, but he writes them a letter because of the work that's happening. Um, but both Colossae and Hierapolis are higher elevations than Laodicea. And in Hierapolis, they have springs, and these springs run with hot mineral water. And people would travel to these hot springs to get water for tea and medicine. Uh, there was cleansing and there was healing at the hot springs. And Colossae, which was elevated higher than Laodicea, had cold rivers that ran through it. And you could go to the river for refreshing, taking a, a, a nice cool drink, uh, uh, even entertainment, right? Enjoyment, a swim, whatever it is. We've got hot springs in Hierapolis and cool springs in Colossae and nothing really in Laodicea. So the Laodiceans built aqueducts from the hot springs in Hierapolis and from the cool springs or the cool rivers in Colossae. And they went down the, the, the mountainous region or really the, the hilly region. I don't know how high the mountains actually were into Laodicea. And by the time they made that travel through the aqueducts to Laodicea, they were lukewarm. And the Laodiceans quickly realized, we can't use this for tea or cleaning, and lukewarm water is not pleasant to drink. This water is good for nothing. And Here's what the text is saying. As a church, we must be good for something. Healing, cleansing, refreshing. Be good for something, but for goodness sakes, don't be good for nothing. Because the church filled with the Spirit of God cannot be good for nothing. And so if you are good for nothing, then you are not the church. And thus you need to repent. And hear the knock on the door. Be good for something. And if we're going to be good for something, we have to be good for something together. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a biographical sketch, sketches of sorts, um, of churchgoers. These are types of churchgoers. And I want you to know that these are composite sketches of archetypes. I didn't have anyone here in mind. So if as you look at these things and as you read and hear these things, uh, if you're convicted or if you're, um, if you're like, hey, he's talking about me, I'm not, so the Holy Spirit must be, okay? Um, <laughs> but the reality is that most of us, a lot of us, tend toward um, one of these people. So let's go. And, and look, there's no way to not be corny, but I hope these get the point across. Uh, the first person is Locust Larry. All right? And Locust Larry goes from church to church and sometimes from ministry to ministry within a church, eating up all its resources until it's dead, and then moves on. Always has problems and never solutions. Let me say, we all have problems, and sometimes our problems are big and we need help. Needing help is not a problem. That's not the issue. But there are times there are people who all they say is they need help, and when help is given, they don't do anything about it, and they stay in their misery, and, and there are people who hear the gospel, they know it's true, they don't respond to it. Not, it's because they don't want change in their lives. They want pity. 
right? Always has problems, never solution. Seeking pity and handouts, but not repentance and life change. Wants things done for them, but never done with them. And always asks, will you? Never can I. And I want you to see that always there. It's okay to ask, will you? We all need to. But we also all need to ask, can I? How can I serve you? And these are the people who take up the resources and the time of the elders, the staff, the leadership, your home groups, your lives. You all know these people. Maybe you are battling being these people. We're going to come back to how they change because all of them change in the same way. Next is Consumer Carl. Consumer, <laughs> <coughs> Consumer Carl thinks that the church is, a, is like a store where giving and serving entitles him to specific rights and returns. Uh, these people think that the church exists to, or exists to serve them, um, him specifically. I paid my tithe. I have my say. Things need to be done for me. They're never satisfied. He's often overly critical and bitter. Never commits to anything for too long. And his favorite statement is, I'm just not getting anything out of it. And look, you ought to be getting something out of church. It's not wrong to go to a church for a month and say, I'm not getting any gospel truth out of the preaching. I need to go somewhere where the gospel is proclaimed. But if the only thing that you judge value by is whether or not you are reaping some benefit as you define it, it's a problem. People aren't here to serve you, even though I would say to the other person, you are here to serve them. That's not the spirit we're supposed to have. Moving on, deadbeat Daryl. He's a member of the family, but why? Right? He considers himself a part of the family, but only by obligation. This is easier for some of you to, to relate to if you're like me. You have a parent who is never there, never gives, never serves, rarely attends. When he attends, is vacant, participates as minimally as possible. And his favorite saying is, all right, let's get this over with. Can I just go? And you can be deadbeat Daryl in the church. You can be fathers especially. You can be present deadbeat dads. Don't. Next up, Invisible Ivan. Invisible Ivan comes to church, maybe, I think. Um, if he does, the only way to tell is if there's an impression in the seat that he usually sits in. Uh, because he sneaks in early and sneaks out late. Or No, scratch that. Reverse it. He sneaks in late and out early. If necessary, talks to no one unless cornered, right? You can, like, do that dance. Ha, ha, hey, how are you? And he's like, oh, gosh, I'm fine. <laughs> what car? I have to go. Um, has no desire for community. Rarely, if ever, serves. And his favorite saying is yet to be heard. 
that was, yeah. Like I said, sometimes corniness works. Next up, workhorse Walter. He's always doing something. Always. Always. And he, attends, he tends to equate his proximity to God with the fullness of his schedule. Workhorse, workhorse Walter loves, um, in fact, lives for recognition. Hey, I'm glad you were part of that. Good job. That means more to him than the advance of the mission of the church or the advance of the name of Jesus. He rarely trains up people to replace him. He doesn't have time for people because he's working all the time, tends to be less concerned with relationships than tasks, and then judges people unfairly for their lack of commitment and laziness. And I didn't put him up there, but he has a twin brother, Workhorse Wesley, and the, the only real identifiable difference is that Wesley starts a lot of projects but never really finishes them, leaving other people to actually bear the burden of the work that he's begun. Next, next up, Pitbull Perry. He's always on guard dog mode, even when it's not necessary. He's wound up tight and always ready to pounce. And we tend towards these people at first because they're dogmatic about doctrine. But here's the reality. He's dogmatic about everything. Everything. You want beige carpet? Have you read Malachi 3? What are you doing? Beige carpet? We can't do that. He seems knowledgeable about everything. Especially scripture and doctrine. Note the word seems. Um, and you can be knowledgeable about scripture and not actually have been affected by it. Right? The goal of instruction is love. Uh, he will turn on his friends and family just as quickly as the enemy. And this is why it's very important. Larry Osborne actually said this. It's very important that when you recognize Pitbull Perry, you don't encourage him. Because here's the reality. You hear stories all the time about parents who are crying because for some reason their Pitbull turned on their children. That's what Pitbulls do. Right? There's a measure of compassion because there's a hurt child, there's a hurting family. But it's what Pitbulls do. You cannot overturn Hundreds of years of breeding with a couple years of training. It's foolish to think so. And Pitbull Perry is quick to say, that's not right. And now finally, Servant Stephen, which is like Deacon Stephen in Acts, and so, sorry. Um, Servant Stephen understands that service is for the glory of God and the good of others. He works out of a response to the gospel and the mission that he has been called to. He works as worship, not for worth. He's compassionate towards all the other people that we mentioned because it's easy to identify those people and say, you're Pitbull Perry, get out of my face. But the servant is compassionate towards them. He has a Philip. Philippians 2 attitude, which is that he holds other people as higher, more important than himself for the sake of Jesus and for the glory of God. He works hard and diligently, but also rests faithfully in Jesus. If you can't remember the last time you took Sabbath rest with your family, you are disobedient. Rest in Jesus is good. And his language, language is gracious, seasoned with salt, and uplifting. 
Now here's the thing. If you fully identified yourself with anybody except for Stephen or partially identified yourself with anybody except for Stephen, then your, 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 it, your concerns fall into really one big overarching problem. And that is that you are finding your identity in anything, really something, but anything other than Jesus. And we all do it. We are all compelled to find our value and our worth in ourselves, in the things we accomplish, in what people think about us, in our knowledge, in our need. But our identity is in Jesus. Turn to Jesus. And only as we all turn to Jesus together can we go back to that, that mission that we're talking about. To, to make disciples in our communities, in our region, and in our world. If you remember, we do it by praying for God's power, thinking strategically, acting with urgency, giving faithfully, and working together. So it makes sense now that we would begin our week of working together by remembering together what Jesus did in communion. Church is about communion with one another and with Jesus. So we're going to take communion. Let's pray. God, I thank you that every single one of those people that we profiled are here and they are not outside of the gracious reach of Jesus Christ. And I pray that the gospel would break our hearts so that we would work in unity, so that we would not be good for nothing, but rather good for your glory. Be magnified in us, Lord Jesus. As we take communion, we remember what you did on the cross. And we, we just take comfort and joy, and we rejoice in that. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross and the resurrection. In his name, amen.